you walk around with a big grin on your face the whole time you're inside the costume. Picture it. You take somebody, you put a giant fur coat on them, you cover their head, you know, so they're fully enclosed in this fur bag, if you will. And then you say, see those stairs over there? Go run up and down them for two and a half, three hours. So physically it was demanding. We would lose about eight pounds a game. Be like the goalie, right? But uh, it was great fun. It was the crowd loved the character. Uh, we were always well, uh, well respected, well liked. It's hard work, but it's great fun. Our organization, Street Characters, we entertain the world, creating the absolute best mascots, period. I'm Glenn Street. I have the world's most interesting job. I'm Top Dog. When the 2019 Super Bowl was broadcast to something like 100 million viewers around the U.S., you wouldn't fault Glenn Street for thinking it was a watershed moment for the Calgary-based entrepreneur and Street Characters, the company he founded in 1987 and now known around the world for creating amazing sports and corporate mascots. In that Super Bowl matchup, both Rampage for the Los Angeles Rams and Pat Patriot for New England were products of Glenn's company and were made in his bustling shop right here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm your host, Terrence C. Gannon, and this is the Work Not Work Show, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Without further ado, here's my discussion with Glenn Street of Street Characters. Glenn, given that you and I share a similar demographic, uh, you'd have done a lot of living prior to the Harvey years starting in 1984. Uh, can you tell us about that period in your life? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm a native Calgarian. And the one thing about Calgary is it's a true entrepreneurial city. I can tell you I've never had a job that I had a salary. Every job I had relied on me creating my own income. I was a paper boy when I was in junior high. And probably the only one that was I got paid hourly was I, I was a gas jockey at Skookum Inn in, in, in Windermere, B.C. But other, other than that, I've had my own jobs where, you know, I was in real estate for a while and kind of fell into this. I, I'm a true entrepreneur. Everywhere I look, I see opportunity. And I can do it a lot better than anybody else, I feel, so I have to go do it on my own. I, and I don't conform well to rules, so... I don't think anybody would hire me even if they wanted to. The Calgary Flames moved here in 1980. I take it you were a fan from day one. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, Calgary was hockey mad back then. Uh, the first couple of years they were playing in the, in the corral, and everybody was scrambling to get tickets. And uh, even when they moved to the Saddle Dome, everybody was scrambling to get season's tickets. They were sold out in season's tickets. Uh, my father was lucky. He was able to uh, get a set with a, a friend of his. And so they were season ticket holders back then. But, oh, yeah, everybody in Calgary is a Flames fan. This show is about turning points, Glenn. Can you remember the precise moment you came up with the idea of approaching the Flames with a mascot concept? And if so, can you tell us about that moment? Well, first of all, talking about turning points, the biggest turning point for me, and where none of this would have happened, I became a volunteer for the Calgary Stampede. And a friend of mine worked there, and I said, gee, someday I'd like to get on a committee. And it was really hard to get on a stampede committee. And she phoned me one afternoon at four and said, if you can be down here in an hour, I can get you on a committee. So I went down, and I was immediately drafted onto the promotion committee. And they had a character named Jim Dandy and Nellie. So picture the 
torso of the cowboy is the human wearing it. And then they've got the horse around them and their legs are coming out the bottom or being the horse's leg. Right. This thing was made by somebody in their basement and weighed like 75 pounds. Right. And in fact, one of the other performers was injured. So the stampede decided that they needed to get rid of this character. It was putting people in the hospital. So I was part of a committee that came up with what is now Harry the Horse. But had I not been a stampede volunteer, I would have never got into the mascot thing. I would have never eventually met Grant and joined the Flames. And I would have never met my wife, who was an usher at the, at the Flames. So that's a real turning point for me from a personal standpoint, that my life went in a very different direction because I was suddenly volunteering in this city. And that you can't put down to anything more than luck. That's right, yeah. And I have no idea what I'd be doing if I hadn't, hadn't gone that route. But uh, I don't think I would have been doing anything as much fun or interesting as this. So suffice to say, you didn't theater training, you weren't a performer, you weren't an actor, you weren't trained a- in any Absolutely not. In fact, I'm colorblind. Oh. Which has turned out to be a good thing because it means I have to rely on my team a lot more. And, so, and they understand that and they, res- they respond really, really well. I think one of the reasons we've been successful is that we're business people running an arts company, not artists trying to run a business, because that's very different. Back to your initial pitch to the Flames, that moment where you kind of go, wait a second. So I think your question is, how did Harvey get started? And Harvey was the brainchild of a fellow that many in Calgary know, a fellow named Grant Kelba. And Grant came up with the idea and he hired an artist I had the artist drop the character, and then he went to the Flames, pitched the idea to the Flames, and the Flames said yes. Hired a seamstress, had her make the costume, and Grant was actually doing Harvey when I started working with him, which was a a little while later. But what the two of us found was the teams were coming and playing the Flames, or people were coming to Flames games, seeing the mascot, and going, hey, we should have one of those too. And I'd always get a phone call saying, hey, that's a great idea. Can you make one for us? So that's how, it, that's how it all got started. And you were the guy in the suit. Well, yeah, Grant was the guy in the suit, and I was doing some of the games as well. So that gave us a real advantage, too, when we started Street Characters. Uh, Harvey was introduced in 84. Uh, the Street Characters was started in 87, and it was Grant and I and then the Seamstress who made the first costume. I think because we were users of the product, it gave us a huge advantage of understanding what we needed to do to make a real user-friendly and safe costume. I attended a couple of the games way back when. Sure. And there were times when I thought Harvey was putting himself in personal peril. There was some arrangement where you stood on the edge of the boards with a skate on the end of a stick or something like that. Sure, the pogo skate. Yeah, right. (laughs) So one of the things about that, and I think why Harvey was successful is that typically we would not rehearse something. We would try it the first time in a game because if it blew up in our face, that was just as good right. as, uh, as nailing it, right? right? Right. So that pogo skate, which Grant actually did most of the time, the crowd loved it because every game he'd seem to be able to get further around the arena. And of course, the goal was to be able to do a complete loop around the ice. Uh, so that people don't know, the boards, at the top of the boards, there's a ledge that's, oh, maybe an inch, you know, two and a half centimeters type thing. Right. So even to walk on it on your own would be really challenged. You'd be pressed against the glass, holding the top of the glass. 
And so we took an old skate and we took a long piece of pipe that you'd bury in the ground to run sewage through, bolted it on, and then the whole idea was to lean on the glass as support and the skate would glide on the ice as you walked along the edge of the of the boards. Did a lawyer step in at any point and saying, boys, that's just going to well, the thing that's interesting. The thing that's interesting is that at that point, uh, we owned Harvey. Oh. The Flames didn't. The reason for that is that when uh, Grant started, they decided to hire Harvey just like they were hiring the trumpeter, if people remember the trumpeter, or the organist. Right. The idea being, well, if this falls flat on its face... We can say, oh, that's not our mascot. That's just a couple of schmucks that we hired to come in here and Contact. and do the games. Yeah, Of course, the exact opposite happened. It became really closely tied to the brand. They had to buy the character. By that time, I had bought Grant out of street characters, and so he was on his own. But uh, it became so valuable and so closely tied to them that they needed to have control. Interesting. What inspiration, if any, did you draw from the San Diego chicken? That was a Canadian who was in this, inside that suit, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah, so Ted Giannoulis, who's yeah. from London, Ontario, really started the modern-day mascot as we know it. Teams like the Mets have had character had their character, I think, since about 34 or something like that, since the 30s. Wow. But it was a character that just kind of showed up and was there. Ted was the one that launched the whole crazy antics, fun entertainer, made it more of an entertainer than just somebody walking around in a costume. Ted, without question, totally changed the industry. And then, you know, very shortly after that, uh, the Philly Fanatic came along, and Dave Raymond is a good friend of mine who did that for a number of years and is now a speaker on fun Mm -hmm. around North America. Ted has had a big impact on creating the industry as it is today or changing the industry to what it is today. He's still working, isn't he? He is, yeah. I think Ted is one of those guys that... It's his baby. He came up with it. He created it. And uh, nobody else, you know, it's too much of his baby. He could not let go. So I wouldn't be surprised that when Ted retires, if he just decides that the chicken's time has come. But yeah, Ted has been doing it a number of years. Give the audience a sense of what it's like being inside that costume. Well, it's great fun. First of all, you get to be this other persona. And, you know, what's interesting is typically introverts make better mascots than extroverts. If you get an extrovert in the costume and you look at it, you go, oh, well, that's just Fred inside. But a lot of the introverts will tell you that when they get in the costume, they become another person. Much like a lot of great actors will tell you that I become the character when they're film, doing a film. And so it's great fun. You know, back then we didn't have a lot of structure around what we needed to do. We, there were 21 announcements from the time the doors opened until the the time the doors closed. Now there's probably that in one one period. So we had a lot of flexibility. We had a lot of profile. We weren't competing with much as far as what was going on in the building. So if the whistle blew, people were automatically looking for Harvey. We were really good at playing off what was happening in the building and what was happening with the team. Because of that, I think that we were we were very successful. We so if you're inside the costume, wasn't all I didn't always know what the score was in the game, but I could tell you by the mood of the crowd who was winning and who wasn't, and how well the Flames were doing. You know, you're walking around, and when you when the game's on, you have to be out of view, right? Because people are there, number one, to see the game. 
But when the whistle goes, everybody wants to see you, and that's the opportunity to play off things. So you're running around, you're looking for great opportunities, and you're... Uh, so, you're, you're so you're improving it. Oh, there's a lot of improv. We always, though, we had certain skits we knew we had created, we knew we were going to do, and I think we were successful because every game we had at least one new thing. So even though if we got up on the railing or on the glass, they knew that we were going to fall and, you know, straddle the glass and, and land on our crotch, and that was always funny. They always loved it. They always knew, too, that they were going to see something they hadn't seen before. You said a second ago that when you stepped inside the costume, you could become that persona. Yeah. yeah. Did the character evolve at all over time? I mean, you did it for a total of how many years, Glenn? I think I was in there for about seven years. And from year one to year seven, did that character evolve? Not really. We had a pretty clear understanding of who Harvey was. Harvey was this adolescent dog, fancied himself as a jock dog, but was still in that awkward stage, still didn't quite have all the coordination he needed. And so he'd go out and he'd try things and then kind of blow up in his face. And if people think about that, that has been Harvey's persona even up to today. How quickly did you start getting calls from other NHL teams and other professional sports teams after you started doing Harvey? It, you know, it was fairly soon after Harvey came out that other teams were going, hey, that's a great idea. We really need to do that. And they could see the reaction the crowd was loving and how much the character was loved. They could see it was another entertainment element of what they could offer at the game. Because, you know, let's remember that number one reason why people are there is the game. But not everybody's a fan. So, you know, you may have a guy going who's bringing his girlfriend who's not really into hockey. and So there's something there to keep her or if you're bringing your kids, the kids entertained. Uh, Now, fortunately, the real fans loved having Harvey around as well. I think that's because we understood our audience. You know, they've always been a great way for teams to kind of expand their entertainment factor because what they came to realize is they're not in the hockey business, they're in the entertainment business. And in order to keep people entertained, particularly if the team's not doing well, is you have to have other things there to keep the fans involved. Who was the first organization to approach you for something similar? I think the very first character that we did, now it wasn't our creation. Again, it had been done by somebody in their basement here in Calgary. They didn't know what they were doing. They made the head out of fiberglass. It was horrendously heavy. It was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And they came to us and they said, you know, we need a new one. Will you build it for us? And we did. And There was never any hesitation that you were going to get into that line of work. Well, no. For the first three years, from 84 to 87, we were telling people, we can't recommend anybody. We had to hire a seamstress to make it ourselves. But what happened was there were so many calls coming that we finally said, gee, maybe there's something here. And that's when we opened our doors. So we didn't rush into it thinking if we build it, they will come. It was kind of the opposite. It was like we've got these people asking us and we don't have an answer for them. Did you get a sense at all that it might be a flash in the pan? That was a bit of my concern when we started. And in fact, Grant had to kind of convince me a little bit to do this because I wasn't sure there was a full business there. But once we got into it and kind of let people know we existed, we started to have nice growth.
Coming up in the next segment, Glenn talks about the very first character of thousands that have been produced by street characters over the years. Who was the first mascot that you did for somebody else? It would have been Wabash for the Cannons. And if you look at Wabash, if you looked at the very first Wabash that we didn't do and the last one that we did do, the two characters were very different. The fans never really picked up on it because every time we made a new one, we would tweak him just a little bit to get him to where we wanted him to be. So it, there was an evolution of, uh, of Wabash as time went on. You weren't the guy inside the costume. No, no. So that was a new element at that stage, having to... Uh, recruit and then train somebody to be the character. Sure. Can you describe that a little bit? Sure. So in fact, a couple of things that we did is we created a school. And what we found is people were calling us and, you know, we'd send the costume to them and then it was like, well, now what? So we would take them by the hand. So we had a a school. Um, I would go down and do private trainings. Uh, We had, uh, have uh, training videos uh, we have an operations manual for the administrator, whoever's running the program. And so we had to make create all these other uh, media pieces to help the clients get their character started. Because like when we started doing this, it wasn't like you just turn around and copy somebody else. You had to kind of figure it out on your own. And that's the same experience our clients were, were having. Uh, what's interesting today is the characters are much like the players. You probably start in high school and do the high school mascot. Then you go on to college and you probably get a full scholarship to be the mascot at your college. And then you go to a farm team and then one of the major league teams hears about you and you get hired and you're in one of the big league teams. But when we started, nobody else was doing it. You know, it was Nobody first else in, wanted to do it, I presume. It was, well, it, it was a new thing, right? It, Harvey was the first in the NHL and one of the first in pro sports. So there wasn't uh, a depth of knowledge that was there. You seem to have emphasized the comedic side of the characters as opposed to anything else. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so, you know, working with a lot of American teams, they want this tough-looking, don't-mess-with-us look to them. And what we get them to understand the conversation we have is, look, you want your team to have this image. You don't want your mascot to have this image. You want this character to be the host in your building for your fans. And you want him to endear himself or herself to the fans. You always want a positive reaction for for your character. And then usually what I'll say is, I'll bet if you think about your favorite character, it's a cartoony, fun type of character. It's not a serious-looking, tough-looking character. It's something that's kind of fun. You look at it and you laugh. Have there been examples or situations where, despite that, what sounds like great advice, people have said, no, we want to go with their first instinct, and it's not worked out? Oh, yeah, there's there have been lots Without of times. Without naming names, obviously. There there, yeah. there have been lots of times where we've said, you know, look, the, the idea that you have, understand that people come to us and they ask for our input. We will do whatever you want. We want you to know what we think about your character. And then we'll walk through and say, look, here's the problems, here's the concerns. We were dealing with a team one time, a hockey team down in the States, and their logo was a human figure. And the humans are the toughest to do because you think about the Philly fanatic out on the field rolling around with a dummy of, a, of an umpire, it's funny. 
if that character was a human character, then it, there becomes kind of a violent element to it. So we said to them, look, you're going to have a tougher time gaining acceptance with a human over, typically we like mammals or birds or characters like the Muppets where you don't really know what it is, right? And uh, they said, no, we're going to go with this. A couple of years later, they came back and they said, no, we want to change. We've decided we want a beaver. We said, sure, we'll make the beaver for you. And so we made the beaver and we sent it, or actually maybe the first character. Anyway, somehow the human character wound up killing the beaver character and then everybody was uh, up in arms. Seriously so, up in arms. Well, well, they were like... It well, was that's, a thing. Yeah, you know, just like a number of years ago, one of the Flames Farms team created uh, a flaming ember type of character and their picture was this character with one foot over a firefighter lying on the ground. And it got, well, two weeks later it was gone. Now, we didn't work with that team on that one and we would have said, you know, there's probably some better concepts we can come up with for you. So, You did Harvey for seven years. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. You walk around with a big smile on your, big grin on your face the whole time you're inside the costume. It's hard work. We were losing, you know, picture it. You take somebody, you put a giant fur coat on them, you cover their head, you know, so they're fully enclosed in this fur bag, if you will. And then you say, see those stairs over there? We go run up and down them for two and a half, three hours. So physically it was demanding. We would lose about eight pounds a game. So it'd be like the goalie, right? But uh, it was great fun. It was the crowd loved the character. Uh, we were always well, uh, well-respected, well-liked. Still today, right? It's still the same. Nothing's changed. So yeah, no, it's great fun. It's hard work, but it's great fun. How did you know it was time to finish? Well, Street Characters was getting too busy. I was having to travel a lot, and I just couldn't keep doing it. Because so, with a 40-game home schedule. Yes, I yeah. Mean, that's eight months of your year, basically. Yeah. yeah, and most of our clients are outside of Calgary, so I was traveling more and more, and it just became more and more difficult to make everything work. But all things being equal, you would have carried on. Yeah, for a little while. What happened is uh, Grant and I uh, separated our ways, uh, and I took over Street Characters. He took over Harvey. And then CFR became the new broadcaster, and so then they hired Grant as a full-time performer just to do Harvey. It was a part-time fun gig for both of us. And then eventually the Flames bought out Harvey's rights. So. As you wrapped up your time inside of Harvey, what was your approach to finding your replacement? Well, Grant was still doing it. Okay. So he carried on. And now that he had a full-time job, his previous job meant he was traveling a lot. And so that's why the two of us were working together. He now had a full-time job doing Harvey, and that's what he did. Is he still doing it today? No. I think that there's been a maybe two people since Grant that have been in the costume. And how have they done, in your opinion? I think they've done well. What I hear a lot is, well, it's, gee, it's not like it used to be. And part of the reason is, is that now, I mean, there's a jumbotron now. There wasn't before. And now, well, you know, we had 21 announcements a game. They probably have that in one period. Every timeout, every uh, whistle, they have something that they have to get out of the way for sponsorship obligations or whatever. Whereas before, we could pretty much every time take control of the building and do what we wanted. 
now, you know, they may only get one or two opportunities during a period. So they're on stage a lot less than they were when we were doing it. And so I think that that makes it a lot tougher to establish that, to have that omnipresence, if you will, within the, within the crowd. But the people who are doing it, I think, are doing a fantastic job. I don't go there and look and am critical of what they're doing. I think that they're great. As I arrived here today for this interview, you walked me through your shop downstairs, and it is just amazing to see all the characters in sort of their various states of evolution and maintenance and the people working sure. on them. Can you des- describe kind of how you got from two guys and a seamstress to that level of operation that you're at today? Uh, just growth. As more people contacted us and we got more and more orders, we needed to hire more people. We needed to move into bigger premises. I think this is our fourth or fifth location. The building that we're in now, we own it, which has been very fortunate for us because it's helped us keep the cost down when we were in a really overheated economy. We weren't worrying about our rent being doubled, you know, when our lease came up. So yeah, just growth has forced it. And as we've grown, we've had to add more people and and add more structure around what we do, newer equipment, equipment that does more thing, you know, embroidery machines, cresting machines. We can dye our own bolts of fabric uh, with any pattern or color we want, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. But growth has been the driver of it. But you've never sat down at any juncture and said, okay, we need to grow 40% this year or hire this number of people. It's always been a response to demand. Yeah, you know what's interesting is up until a year ago, we were a, a reactive marketing organization, which meant that everybody that we had dealt with had initiated the conversation with us. Now we're being a little bit more proactive and it's working out. We've got some, we just finished a nine characters as a test run for a, a store, a retail chain. And they're thrilled and we're going to probably get a lot more orders from them out of that. Now that we're going after people and saying, hey, why aren't you talking to us as well? Uh, we're, we're now growing the business and getting more more hiring more people we're you know we're probably hiring every three or four months when i did my research for this show your official title is top dog can you describe the the culture of street characters so we have uh our core values our number one core value is be the customer we've all been in a situation where something has happened with a, a company that we've dealt with and we just want them to make it right. And they'll say, oh, well, our policy is, or because of this, or because of that, and we go away mad. And my view has always been, those are the opportunities to really deepen the relationship. So I tell my team, look, if somebody's having an issue, I do not want you looking at the cost of fixing it. I want you sitting down and asking yourself, if I was the customer, what would I want? Let's deal with it on that basis. So the best example I have is we work with uh, some design companies in the United States who do logos and jerseys and things like that. And there was uh, a college in the States we were working with, and they were rebranding. And we were involved in the conversation. We'd seen iterations of what their mascot would look like. And finally, the college called us one day and said, okay, the last piece of artwork, that's it. Go. Go. So we built the character, we shipped it down. 
Hadn't heard anything from them. So phone a few weeks later and said, is uh, everything okay? And they said, well, you know what? Between the time that we said yes, go, and the time we got the character, the design totally changed. And uh, On their side or on, on your their, side? On their side. On their side. Yeah. The, the whole concept totally changed. And we can't use it. And we don't know what to do. So I said, send us the new artwork. Let us take a look at it. So we looked at it and we said, no, no, we can work with this and we can tweak it and we can. So they sent it up to us. We did all of the alterations and everything at no cost and sent it back down to them. None of which you were expecting, obviously. Probably about five weeks later, I was down there with my, my sales guy. And he left the room for a minute and the contact said, I have to thank you. I said, why? He said, you are in your full rights to tell me to go pound sand, that you did exactly what I asked, and you did. I want you to know, had you done that, I would have lost my job. I don't know how to thank you. So do you think now, anytime anybody asks the question, so is the costume, what happens if the costume doesn't look the way we want it to? Just give Jeff a call. He'll, he'll explain it to you. So that was, uh, cost us a little bit of money, but it has been a huge uh, marketing piece for us. And I can tell you, anytime any, he hears, hears the word mascot from any other colleges, I know he's advocating very strongly, and he's telling his own experience. Yeah, he's got a first-person story sure. that's yeah. really uh, compelling. Yeah. So what are some of the other values of street characters? So there's uh, alignment, which is uh, think like an owner. That we want everybody to understand that we're all in this boat rowing together and everybody has the same interests. So it's the customer, it's the team, and the company. If we're all successful, we're all going to do really well. We'll be back in a moment with much more from Glen Street after a brief word from one of our sponsors. Given Glenn's approach to corporate values, it's appropriate that this episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October the 10th, 2019. The Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures where everyone thrives. Supporting the health and wellness of employees is becoming a major consideration for many workplaces and Alberta Blue Cross wants to connect the dots of what it takes to create healthier workplaces with happy people. Among the speakers is Lance Secretan, author of The Bellwether Effect, a bestseller that shows leaders how to replace morale-killing business practices with inspiring ones. Alberta Blue Cross has designed the summit so that you're not just sitting and listening. You'll have a chance to actively engage with the information, the speakers, and other attendees, and will come away with practical tools and evidence-based resources you can use, whether you're a frontline worker or a C-suite executive. It's going to be at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th. Learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. Now back to our discussion with Glenn Street, and we start this segment with those times when suitors came calling and talked to Glenn about possibly buying street characters and making it a part of a larger organization.
lots of people say content is king, and there are kings of content out there like Disney and Universal. Have they come knocking on your door? They have, but not in the way you'd think. So first of all, we've been up against Disney, I think, three times now, and we've been selected over them each time. So Disney is, you would describe as one of your competitors? On the fringe. Sure. Yeah. Um, But people very soon come to realize that building a character to be in a stadium and being active is very different than building a character to have its picture taken in a theme park. And so when we're able to explain that to people, they go, okay, I get it. And I think that's why we've done really well. The other way that they're knocking on my doors is they're entertainment companies and they have costume departments of their own. And typically what happens with them is that they design a show, they go like crazy to build this and everybody's in this rushed frenzy. And then they ship and then they stand around and go, well, what do we do now? They've got no work, right? <laughs> right? So it's these huge peaks and these huge valleys, nothing right. in between. Right. So some of them have approached me from time to time to say, we think we should buy you because you would kind of smooth things out for us a little bit. We know we would have a steady business through the year and we'd be able to keep our core people going. And then when the, the shows come in, we're, we're there and we can ramp up quickly to deal with those shows. So we've had a few come in and, and talk to us, and we've had some offers, but uh, they're not there yet. So, Who would you see as your competitors? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Disney, but who are some of the other competitors in the marketplace? There's a handful of really qualified, good competitors. Uh, we don't come across them very often. And the reason for it is that there's enough business for everybody. And quite frankly, if somebody contacts us and says our sole focus is price we will call them and say if that's the case we're not going to bid let us explain why because if you understand why you'll hire us and so what we do is we go through and we explain to them look we're using new technology fabrics like dry wicking fabrics and we're lining the costume and we're using this material and that material and we're building you a really high quality character that's is good enough for the NFL and Major League Baseball, those organizations. So you can spend a few dollars now, and in a couple of years, you can spend it again. Or you can buy one from us that's going to last you a long, long time, and over that period of time is going to be a lot less expensive, and uh, you're going to have a lot less grief. And one of the facilities that we walked by downstairs was a maintenance facility. No, I have to correct you. The spa. The spa. We have a spa. (laughs) We have a mascot spa. Mascot spa. Yeah, but but you know what's interesting about that is, again, going back to how we make the characters, they're made so well that we have very little bit of repair coming in here. Not a lot at all. Our costumes are all designed to be, for the most part, machine washed. They're, again, because background is being a mascot, we've created it to make it easy for the performer to be able to care for this thing. Right. But that eight pounds of sweat's going somewhere. When I was doing Flames games, I would take the padding off. I'd hang it up on the shower head of one shower. I'd turn the water on, let it run through. I'd go have a Gatorade or drink water, whatever, kind of cool down and wind down. And then when I'd go shower, I'd just let it hang. And while I was showering, all the water would run out of it. And by the next morning, it'd be dry. So yeah, the sweat does go somewhere. The body's machine washable. Mm -hmm. They're built to be lightweight and durable. 
which sometimes is a conflict, right? But we're able to do it and, and easy to maintain because we get what it's like to have these characters. Now, the Ducks didn't have to care about that because they had a Disney character and Disney had this giant costuming department. So, right. But uh, most, most of the teams don't have that. How do you find professional sports teams as customers? I mean, it looks like a fun business, but looks can be deceiving. For the most part, they're great. We love working with them, and we have the types of relationships that they appreciate what we do. They understand the value proposition. We've performed for them, you know, be the customer. So we're very careful about meeting the commitments that we make and delivering on time and those things. Again, many of our competitors are artists, and they don't get the concept, right? You know, sometimes we get teams that uh, are a little cocky and say, well, you should feel honored to be dealing with this and have that kind of attitude. And and we say we, we are, but we're also a, a small business and we need to get paid for the work that we do. So, How do you find colleges to deal with, like particularly in the U.S., like where sports is big business? Colleges are a dream because if you think about the pro teams and you think about colleges, their revenue streams may be the same, but the colleges don't have that one major expense that the pro teams do, salaries, player salaries. So the colleges, uh, you know, will put in a budget stream and, you know, have a renewal thing. And they're a dream to deal with because it's just in their budget. And if they need it, they'll, they'll buy it. Well, and we attended a, an Oregon Ducks game. College sports, they are just crazy about. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting is, like, when we're talking to people down there uh, about high schools, and, you know, a high school game in the States will have 10,000 people. It's a huge deal. It's the, it, it, it's the thing to do in town is to go to the high school game. Right, Friday nights. Uh, and I went to a few a couple times down in Montana. Friday nights are a big thing in high school. Yeah. And when we explain to our clients down in the States, well, the University of Calgary, like, they're lucky if they get 3,000 students. They can't comprehend that because, you know, sports is really part of the American culture, far more than it is up here, particularly college sports, right? We would not be successful if we just focused on Canada Mm -hmm. because this is really an American cultural thing that we've tapped into. For somebody whose dream in life is to be a sports mascot, to be the person inside the costume, what advice can you offer? Well, you need to get experience. You always have to start somewhere, and usually it's on the bottom of the totem pole. Typically, there are charities out there that have characters that they're dying to get people to wear them to be out in the community. Seek out those charities. Get some experience. Then go to a company that maybe has a mascot like Chuck E. Cheese. Again, not going to pay very well, but you're getting experience. Make sure as you go along that you're getting, you know, highlight video and things like that. While you're out in the community, you're going to meet the local team mascots and you're going to get to know those guys. And if you impress them, um, then when he says, gee, I'm going to need a backup or I'm going to step down, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I've seen Fred doing Chuck E. Cheese. He'd be awesome. You should hire him. Right. And that's typically how how you get it. Uh, there are ways to get training. We run Mascot U every year. This year it's going to be at the new Mascot Hall of Fame just outside of Chicago. There, there, about is, a 17, there is such a thing? It's about a 17 million U.S. building that they just built in Whiting, Indiana. And, uh, and so we're going to do Mascot U this year. And every other year we're going to host it there as well. 
So get out there. A great way to learn is watching others. So watch what the other mascots are doing and learn some new things that you can learn that way. And you said earlier that that actually introverts do better at this than extroverts. Sure. That's a generalization. I mean, I can tell you some great extroverts that have been great characters as well. Describe the process of getting a customer from a blank slate, assuming they come to you with that, and getting that to a finished character. Okay, let's assume that the customer comes to us and they don't know what they want at all. We will have a conversation about where they're from, what maybe what the area is known for, are there any animals that are unique to that area, those types of things. So the, the best example I can give for a Canadian audience not a character that we created, he was out before we started, but Gainer the Gopher for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, right? You think Gopher, you think Saskatchewan. (laughs) So we take them through this process and we try to figure out if there's a natural tie-in to what that character is going to be. And and then if not, then we, we have a bit more of a conversation and try to figure out what they're trying to represent or or that type of thing, and and we will refine it from there. Sometimes it's easy, like if your name's the Sharks, it's pretty obvious what you're going to be, right? How long does that take? Oh, so it really depends on a number of factors. If we're starting from scratch to get the artwork right, it's probably back and forth. Going to take a month of revisions and discussions and then doing a concept and revising it and probably revising it one more time. Then we uh, do a quote, the quote is signed off on, then we send out fabric samples, that's signed off on, and then probably three months later, the character arrives on your doorstep. You know, we usually like to have a two to three months backlog, uh, and that's typically what we have. Sometimes it's a little bit less. How much of the experience is the mascot costume? And how much of it is the person inside? And are there other elements that make that go into making it successful? Great question. So we explain to our clients, potential clients, there are three keys. You have to have the right person. You have to have the right costume. And the organization needs to be committed. You need to have all three of those, right? And typically, if one of those three is missing, it's not going to go well for you. Now... The most difficult is finding the right person because we've all been at events where the mascot's been lame, right? And you look at it and go, well, what's the point? He's just standing there in the corner looking around. So finding the right person is the most difficult. But if he has a costume or she has a costume, they can't wear. It's too heavy, too hot, unsafe. They can't see out of it. They can't walk in it. Or the organization isn't putting the resources behind it to make it a success they will fail. Have there been any concepts that you've just said, we're not doing that? Well, we were talking earlier about core values, right? And you never know if you're going to live your core values until you're tested with them. And so the best example I have is we had a, uh, a company show up one time and a medical device company and what they corrected was erectile dysfunction where they emailed a piece of artwork which was a penis. And so I looked at this and I thought about it and I finally called them back and I said, guys, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I said, I have a a shop full of women. One of our core values is respect. And I do not feel comfortable coming forward and asking them to do this. 
it's not a commentary on what you do. I think what you're doing is very important, but it's a reflection of who we are and the type of environment that I've created for this organization. Did you did you try and take them in a different direction, or was that was just business you turned away? No, we just turned it away. Yeah. Can you characterize the scale of your operation today somehow? Sure. We are doing uh, uh, on a weekly basis at least three characters a week, sometimes much more than that. Uh, we've got 20 full-time employees. 85% of what we do is export. Most of it goes to the United States, but the only continent that uh, we don't have a client on is Antarctica. So we're we're shipping stuff all over the world. Uh, what's interesting is nobody knows who we are in Canada. We're extremely well-known in the United States. Um, a friend of mine is involved with the Nashville Predators, and I was in the owner's box, and the president walked in, and he said, David, I want you to meet Glenn Street. Glenn, and the president turned to him and said, I know who Glenn is. He's the mascot guy. Everybody knows who Glenn is. So at that point, I knew I'd made it. Right. In this final segment with Glenn, we start off with a discussion of what it's like running a company like his in a town so dominated by another industry like oil and gas, such as we are here in Calgary. You and I have both lived in Calgary for a lot of years. We've seen the ups and downs of the oil and gas business. Is this a business that's totally immune from that? Not, I wouldn't say totally immune. Uh, the good news is is that we don't get hit when the down cycles happen uh, because we're our, most of our, our, our business is in the U.S. Where we do get hit is when things are in a real up cycle, the, the economy's in a real heated phase, a boom. Then we're having to compete with oil companies. Um, and the... Sure. Exorbitant salaries. And the exorbitant salaries. And uh, we've always tried to focus on, look, if you're an artist, sure, you can go out and work out in the field somewhere for an oil services company, but you don't get to do what you love. We've lost very few during those real high up cycles because they get to do what they truly love to do here. I mean, we're not paying high, high wages here because, again, we're competing against companies and on the Texas-Mexico border, and we're competing in the U.S. market. We've got a great team here, and, you know, the core value alignment I talked about earlier, we have profit share and things like that. So, again, if we do well, we all do well together. Now that you've arrived pretty much measured by any definition, is there any part of the early days that you wish you could have back? One of the best things that I did, and I would say this to anybody who's started a business, I joined, as soon as I qualified, a, an organization called the Entrepreneurs' Organization, eonetwork.org. And uh, you need a million U.S. in revenue to be able to join. But the good news is the Calgary chapter also has a program called Accelerator. So if you just Google EO Accelerator, it'll come up. And your revenue threshold there is about $200,000, $250,000, I think, Canadian. What those organizations do is they teach you best practices of what really great companies do to run their businesses. 
So I can listen to a CEO of any organization for about two minutes, and I can tell you how well they're running their business. And that's because of the things that I've learned through EO over the years. I think tribe is important. I had mentors very early on. I think it's important to have mentors. I joined EO because we're not in the oil and gas business. So even though I'm a native Calgarian, I didn't know any of the Calgary business community because I'm not involved in the Calgary business community. EO became a a group of like-minded people who were also founders of their own businesses and facing the same types of situations that I was. Your mascots are not just game entertainment. They're also the ambassadors for the team to a large degree. Can you describe that part of the role? Well, there's basically five roles for a mascot. So for a team, they add to the in-game entertainment. They give you the ability to bring in more sponsors. The move of the game, for example, and the mascot moves the fans. You're able to build uh, additional promotions around your mascot. So it might be the mascot birthday party or a mascot hockey game or something during the game. You have the ability of additional revenues through appearance fees, through merchandising, and you have the ability to have a high profile out in the community. And if you do it well, you make money at it. So normally to uh, add entertainment, to be out in the community, have a profile, those types of things cost you money. And if you do it right, it'll make you money with a mascot. This also includes visits like to hospitals and so forth. Sure. Describe that part of the job. I think the best way I can explain it, we call our characters a walking business card. A number of years ago, I spoke at the NHL marketing meetings and told them about the Flames experience. And when I was done, one of the vice presidents of the Flames stood up and said, you need to understand Even in hockey-mad Calgary, we can take our marquee player and we can take our mascot and we can send them down the street together. More people are going to know who our mascot is. Right. (laughs) And, you know, the other thing, too, is if the mascot has an appearance, it doesn't get up in the morning and decide whether or not it's going to go or not like a player can. I see. You say you're going to be there. It's going to be there. Right. Harvey is virtually one of the most recognizable characters in the Saddledome. Oh, well, in the city, he's often voted number one mascot in the city. A couple of examples I can give you. There used to be a sports channel called Sports Channel America. They did the four great personalities in hockey, and one was the organist in Montreal, I think, and, and I can't remember what the other was, the other two were. But the final one was Harvey for the Flames, and that was an American sports channel. That's amazing. Talking about Harvey. So that's one. You know, the other one is that we were uh, at the NHL All-Star in in New York, and we're out parading Harvey around Manhattan, and people were yelling, Harvey, Harvey, over here, Harvey, (laughs) Harvey. So he's somewhat recognizable, and people get it. What's the worst part of the job, Glenn? I mean, it looks like you're having the time of your life, but there must be days where you kind of go, oh, not another mascot. Uh, No, that, that isn't the part of it. I think anybody that owns their own business will tell you that there's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. For us, some of the things that we're fighting right now, typically it's around government and stupid decisions and tariffs are a concern right now for us. It's kind of out of our control, but we have to figure out how to deal with it. 
We've heard about property taxes for some organizations skyrocketing. Fortunately, we haven't been as bad as some that we've seen, you know, going from 30000 to 200000 a year type thing. When you own your own business, you're the CEO, you're the CFO, you're the head of marketing, you're the head of human resources, you're, you know, you have to wear all of these hats. You know, you look at a big company like Shell, they've got people in each of these different areas. You can't afford that when you're a small company. So you really have to be a jack of all trades and you really have to understand your role in all of them. The lowest of lows is typically when there's a surprise and it's like, oh crap, is this going to kill us? And many entrepreneurs will tell you they've had near-death experiences at one time or the other. You've had those? Oh, I've probably had two or three, yeah. Glenn, where do you and street characters go from here? Well, so I've been doing this for a while, and through EO, I've learned how to run a really great organization, and I've learned how to scale an organization and how to really have it grow quickly. I I think it's time for new blood to be running the organization. So what I've told my leadership team is that I'm planning on scaling back over the next little while, and I want them to be able to take over the reins of the organization, which they're excited about. I've got two key people that I think are both really good and really capable. With the organization now, obviously. Yes, yeah. yeah. I figure that with everything I've learned, so for example, I talked earlier about EO Accelerator. I was a a mentor on that. I took five or six six companies through the process. Within eight months, uh, and the whole idea is to get them to the million so they qualify for EO. Within eight months, I took five of the six to that million mark. So I really know how to take an organization and give it focus and prioritize and then put the rocket fuel in it to take off. And I figure I've got one more good one left in me. And so... One uh, in particular or just... Well, one more good business left in me. I see. And I'm, you know, also looking at my next challenge right now to see what I'm going to be doing next. With seemingly every sports franchise, and college for that matter, already having some sort of mascot, how do you continue to scale the business in the future? I'm always asked that question. And the reality is, is that teams move, or the costumes wear out and need replacing, or the team changes the colors, or they change their name. We've not had a lack of business here. So it's not, uh, you know, not every team has today has a mascot, right? More and more of them do. But, uh, you know, Philly came out with uh, with Gritty this year. Oh, Gritty. That's, not that, one of ours. I was going to say, is not that one of ours? Was that, was uh, that one of yours? But no. And, you know, so there's still a few teams that don't have them yet. And probably over time, they'll, they'll come on or teams will move, uh, you know, whatever. There's always opportunity. And there's always companies looking at it going, yeah, we should get one of those, right? And what percentage of your business, if you can characterize it that way, is non-sports, like commercial So, So what's actually interesting is probably about half our business is corporate, which is more than our, what we do on the sports side. But we promote ourselves on the sports side because those are the most difficult characters to make because they're highly active over a long period of time and they're getting abused. So if we can make something that's going to work for Harvey for the Flames, we can sure make something that's going to work well for a a hotel chain or something like that. Is there a moment where you can visualize retiring from this? 
And if so, is there some unrealized dream that you still want to pursue? You know, I've been at this a long time, 32 years now. I've got a good team that's able to take over for me. I think it's time for them to step up and take it forward. So my dream is they're successful. And then, you know, my dream is to take my talents and apply them in other, in other areas to, to create new businesses and more employment and things like that. In all of the interviews that you've done, what's the one question you've never been asked? You know, most of the time we, we pretty much cover, cover all of it. I think you've even asked some of the ones that I maybe haven't been asked before. You know, I was thinking about regrets and what do I wish I'd done differently? And the answer was, I, I wish I'd got into EO sooner. Uh, there isn't a whole lot that I would change in this. It's been a great arc. It's been a fun business. You know, you say I've made it easy. Well, it's a fun, easy, interesting topic to talk about, right? If we were making um, computer accords, I don't know how exciting we could make that. <laughs> so I think the topic itself makes it really fun and really interesting. But yeah, I would have uh, surrounded myself with my peers much sooner, but I didn't know where they were at the start. If you're running a business, get involved in in organizations that are going to have you out with your peers. Go out and find mentors. I always had mentors. In fact, my my biggest mentor, who I had lunch with yesterday, um, when I started this, he kept telling me, this is a dumb idea. Why are you doing this? And he says, and he laughs out, he says, wow, I, that was sure bad advice, wasn't it, Glenn? <laughs> and I always just laugh and say, Bill, I'm successful because I had to go out and spite you. <laughs> so, right, uh, exactly. So I, I would say that uh, I don't know that there's something I haven't been asked that I wish I'd been asked a lot of questions, but I would say that the one regret is that I should have got, got myself surrounded with really good people earlier than I did. What's the one thing that you would want people to know about you and this business that maybe you haven't told anybody else? Well, again, I I don't know about this business. I think I'm proof that you can go out and follow your dream. Now, it doesn't mean it was easy. I had to make a lot of sacrifice, particularly in the early days. We started this company with only $3,000, and like most startups we were hopelessly underfunded and that was a struggle for a while and the other thing is is that you can do this in a way you don't have to go out and start with the Cadillac model Uh, I'll give you an example I sat down with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who said you know I've got this twist on a cooking class and I want to run it but how do you fund you know go out and find the space and fund a kitchen and because it was going to be hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars, to do something like that. And I said to him, you know, you don't have to do that. There are lots of restaurants in town that are maybe busy only lunch, over lunch or closed Monday nights or whatever. Go out and find one of those and talk to them and, and say, hey, look, can I use your space? Here's my concept. And then go and talk to all of your friends and say, here's my concept. What do you think? Hey, I love that idea. Well, of course, you're going to tell you I love it. They're not, your friends are going to say, well, that's the dumbest idea I've, I've ever heard. So the next step is you say, great, give me your credit card. What do you mean? Well, you love the idea. Give me your credit card. And when I start, I'm going to get, I'll sign you up. And if they start backpilling, oh, no, well, then you know the true answer to that. Right. So I, I think the thing that I'd like to share is it's probably more work and more sacrifice than you expect. 
actually the line I use is when you own your own business, you only have to work half a day. And it doesn't matter if it's the first 12 hours or the last 12 hours, right? right? Okay. But, uh, but, the, but those are the types of things I'd like to share is yeah. that go out and live your dream. And, but do it in a smart way as you move forward. You don't have to jump in with both feet. You don't have to quit your job. You can do it as a side thing until you know. And then when you've got that thing, you can have the satisfaction of going in and giving your boss your uh, your notice and knowing that you've got something that's going to support you down the road glenn before we wrap up i just have one more question it's a it's a question i ask all of my guests this has been an utterly fascinating discussion today It's been an utterly fascinating journey. And the only thing I would like is to be able to come back at some point in the future and pick up the story. Would that be okay? Could we do that again at some point? Terry, you're welcome anytime. Pick up the phone, give me a shout, and you're welcome to come back and see what's going on. Because I promise you, it'll be different. Fantastic. Glenn, I just wanted to thank you for being on the Work Not Work show. It has been an absolute delight. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again down the road. Thanks, Terry. It's been fantastic. And check us out at mascots.com. This brings to an end this episode of the Work Not Work Show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Glenn Street. It was an amazing conversation, Glenn, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about where you take this great story next. If you like what you've heard on this episode, follow the Work Not Work Show on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a companion publication on Medium featuring exclusive materials you can only find there. That's medium.com. And then just search for the word work, not work. You can't really miss it. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession. In each episode of the Work Not Work show, we like to take a moment to introduce fellow members of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB, and in this case, a brand new podcast which has just joined the network. It's a story which I think you will find really fascinating. The new podcast is called The Undercurrent, produced by The Narwhal, and the series is about Bear 148, a beloved grizzly bear who lived in Alberta's Bow Valley. Here's a short clip from the show. This is the story of a bear. Certain areas, certain bears gain a, a greater profile. 148 has been in the news. Um, you know, she walks across the parking lot and she's on the front page of a national newspaper. Bear 148 was a female grizzly bear who lived most of her life in Banff, Canada's busiest national park. She wasn't afraid of people and she became a sort of local celebrity who was seen, photographed, and written up in the news a lot. So people 
come, came to know her and you know, you come to know something, then you feel attached to it. And something bad happens and you feel bad. When Bear 148 left the national park, she crossed an invisible border and walked into a new set of rules. We've drawn all of these lines on a map and we've said, okay, over here, do this and this will happen and do that and this will happen over there. And it's a very complex rule book and um, bears can't read. Crossing that border would set into motion a series of events that would lead up to Bear 148's death, nearly 500 kilometers northwest of her home. For The Narwhal, I'm Molly Siegel, and this is Bear 148, a podcast that tells the story of the life and death of a bear that captivated a community. Subscribe now and find Bear 148 in your podcast feed in June 2019. Bear 148 is a six-part series which is available now. Search for Bear 148 wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find it at thenarwhal.ca slash undercurrent. You can find all the members of the Alberta Podcast Network at, predictably, albertapodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to the Work Not Work Show, and we'll see you all next time.